0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center and Damon Linker, who writes Eyes on the Right for Substack, the Bulwark's Ted Johnson is sitting in for Bill Galston today, and our special guest is Peter Wayner, writer for The Atlantic and contributor to The New York Times. Welcome one and all. So kind of a busy week. NATO has two new members. The United States Supreme Court has one new member. Ketanji Brown Jackson was sworn in this week, but we are going to be busy discussing the ruling that the Supreme Court has handed down, and then get to the other huge news event of the week, which was the testimony before the January 6th committee of Cassidy Hutchinson. So I'd like to begin with the Dobbs decision, and I have to confess to mixed feelings about this. Linda, I'm going to start with you. I have always believed that Roe was wrongly decided, But I'm also a Burkean in the sense of Edmund Burke, and I believe in slow organic change and not sudden radical change. And the John Roberts' opinion, where he was completely alone, it was a concurrence, nobody joined him, but he said that he found the decision to be actually violative of a very important principle of judicial restraint. He said, quote, if it is not necessary to decide more to dispose of a case, then it is necessary not to decide more. And he also chastised both the majority opinion and the dissent. He said, the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on the legal issue that I
1: cannot share. Did that speak to you at all, Linda? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, you know, surprise, surprise, you and I don't beg to differ, but actually agree on this. Like you, I believed that the 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, that it had a very, very weak basis. And by the way, it wasn't just conservatives who thought that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not believe that the decision as it was written was well thought out. However, I believe that this was such a divisive issue that Americans were so deeply divided by religious views, by views about the role of the state and privacy and private rights, that it was something better left to states to be able to make decisions that reflected the culture and the political views of their citizens. However, having said that, I think if this had come about in 1973, when the country was on the way to liberalizing abortion laws across the nation, we would have had a very different outcome than having it happen today. Because what has happened today is that we have a variety of states in which real radicals are in control on both the left and the right. There are those who want to allow abortion uh, basically to the moment that the child has emerged from uh, her mother's uh, body, to those who would chase down women, even rape and incest victims, who want to cross state lines to seek a legal abortion in a state other than the one in which they live. And I think that is why this decision is so fraught. It is because it happens at this political moment in which we do not have anything like reasonable debate and discussion of the underlying issues. Uh, Instead, we have people from the extremes of both the left and the right who are driving this. Pete Wayner, I saw a piece by Marianne Glendon and
0: somebody else, I can't remember who her co-author was, but it was about that the work of the pro-life movement should just be getting started and that should include a lot more care for mothers and babies, an expansion of the welfare state, um, more emphasis on bringing fathers into the equation and making them responsible and so forth. But that's not what you're seeing in general from the pro-life movement or from these states, as Linda points out, talking about passing laws that would prevent women from going to another state to get an abortion. I mean, we currently have differences in our state laws on lots of things like gambling or marijuana or other things. And it's never been thought that the states had a right to prevent their citizens from traveling to another state to take advantage of those things.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair point, uh, Mona. I I do think that it's partly an incomplete point because I do think that a lot of people in the pro-life movement, not the ones that are getting a lot of attention, have over the years done tremendous amount of work with crisis pregnancy centers and adoption. Um, I know the people who have done it. I know churches that have done that. And and they're doing that to their credit quietly and they don't get a lot of attention for it. So I I think it's important not to underestimate or downplay those efforts. That said, there are people within the pro-life movement who have been energized in, I think, a very difficult and counterproductive and harmful way for the reasons that you described. Well, I agree with you, Mona. I've uh, thought and long thought and still think that the Roe decision and the Casey decision were uh, very bad decisions and needed to be overturned. They were, as best I can tell, the Supreme Court trying to ratify predetermined political and uh, cultural outcome. And then the question, in part, is is the one that you and, and Linda uh, dilated on, which is, was the Roberts' concurring opinion, which was in part a dissent, the right way to go, or was the Alito opinion? And I find myself begging to differ with myself, actually, not with others on that, <laughs> yeah. because I accept the point you made, but I, I do think that Justice Alito responded to the concerns by Roberts. And essentially, argued, I would say, that if the court didn't get out of this once and for all, it was only going to prolong the agony, that the court would be stuck forever trying to make decisions at various places of viability. And Justice Scalia wrote years ago, I think this was in the Casey decision, that the Mansion of Abortion Rights was going to be taken out door jam by door jam. And I think the majority opinion decided we've got to get out of it now. And that the credibility of the court is going to suffer if we stay in it and we, in a sense, don't pull this Band-Aid off. But there could not be a worse political moment or a worse political environment and civic environment for a decision of this magnitude to be dropped. I mean, it's just going to roil the country we already seen that it has. There are huge implications to this in all sorts of ways and one other thing is is the context in which this decision took place the number of abortions in america now lower than they were pre roe v wade Um, and so abortions have been going down steadily since depending on which metric you use late 80s early 90s and so i'm not sure how many abortions are going to go down because of this decision And then there's the issue of abortion itself, which I think is so morally complicated in my estimation. So it's I've uh, really been sort of sorting through from a judicial philosophy and a policy perspective what the right opinion is. And I wish I had some certainty on it.
0: Ted, one of the things that's distressing is that if a state passes a law that outlaws all abortions right from the moment of conception, which some states are considering, You know, you do worry about what that empowers the state to do, because if a woman goes to an emergency room with a miscarriage, you know, and she's bleeding heavily, you know, is the sheriff going to be investigating to see whether she swallowed an abortion pill or it potentially involves a level of intrusion into areas of privacy uh, to use that fraught word from a legal perspective but leaving aside the right to privacy it's a whole different question but it does necessarily empower the state doesn't it
3: That's exactly right and so it's interesting in in the opinion which sought to remove the courts from this decision and make it a political matter which is to say allow the people to decide through their legislature how they want to handle the issue it empowers the state in many instances to be the determinant. So it actually doesn't put the onus on the people. It actually puts the onus on the state to implement whatever the people decide or, or what people maybe a century ago decided, given some of these trigger laws. But your point about privacy actually is connective here uh, because before Roe, the terms of the debate were kind of up in the air. You know, Griswold, the, this, the case around the right to marital privacy and contraception was um, decided in just a decade earlier, 65 or something like that, and that was a matter of privacy, of marital privacy. There was also the frame that this was really a matter for a woman and her doctor to determine, and that the state shouldn't get in between the medical opinion of a doctor uh, advising um, his or her patient. And then, of course, the frame that was ultimately chosen was this civil rights frame or a woman's right to choose? Now, pre Roe, activists, political elites were sort of debating all of these things. But what Roe did was say this is a civil rights question. This is a question about a woman's right to choose, not a privacy question, not a question about like health. It's not a social problem. This is a civil rights issue. And that is how we get to Dobbs, which is to say there is no, the the opinion is that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. And if this had been a privacy debate, it would have been the at least the rationale for the controlling opinion would have been different and certainly if this was a social question it would have been different think about abortion being considered an issue like affirmative action there's no constitutional right to affirmative action anywhere and even the court doesn't read that in but it basically says this is a social issue and so as states try to grapple with this social issue or institutions try to do so the court will sort of look at their plans and determine whether or not they're discriminatory or whether they're allowable given their objectives. Because this conversation was not a privacy one, it was not a social one, but a rights one, that basically leads to the moment that we're in, which is the question of whether or not this right is in the constitution. The court said it used to be, and now the court has said it is not. Right. Uh, And just sort of wrap up here. I wonder if the next iteration of this is a question of a woman's bodily autonomy, not the right to choose, but a right to have her body to be left alone by the government, which sort of wraps back to the privacy point you brought up at first.
0: So Damon, one of the sort of frustrating aspects of this is that the public image of what the Supreme Court does and what the Supreme Court actually does are actually pretty far apart. The public thinks that these justices sit around and decide what policies they would like to see And then they just rule accordingly. And that's not accurate. I mean, so they have to base their decisions on law. And sometimes, admittedly, they will stretch the meaning of terms to achieve a desired outcome. Of course, that happens. They're human. But the reason that there was so much objection to Roe was that, well, for many reasons. But one of them was that the reasoning of the original decision and also Casey was that exactly that it did remove the issue from political discussion. So it wasn't a matter of states being able to come to some sort of compromise position. Okay, you know, abortion before 12 weeks is allowed, and after that it's not, like Europe mostly has. But we weren't allowed to have those kind of compromises because the Supreme Court said, no, this is an absolute constitutional right, like your right to free speech or your right to practice your religion. And therefore, states cannot, cannot legislate on this matter. And so it really was the fault of the original Roe and Casey decisions that we have found ourselves in this radicalized moment, isn't it? That both sides, because that was the law, you know, have gone to extremes rather than trying to find compromises. Do you think now that it's gone, people will have to come back to finding uh, some kind of reasonable accommodations with one another.
4: Well, one would hope so. I mean, I've I've written some things over the last week about Dobbs and, and the uh, implications of it that have gestured toward a hope that we might do something like that, like find something like a European-style compromise where abortion uh, across the country is legal and available through, say, 12 to 14 weeks, and then very rapidly becomes a banned with very rare exceptions for the life of the mother beyond that, and that everyone would sort of accept this as a compromise. But I tend to be pretty pessimistic about this, and certainly what I've seen over the last week would seem to en- encourage that kind of pessimism, because Both because we're already very divided, and as you indicate, yeah, part of the blame for the division has to go back to the original Roe decision, which started us down this path. But it's also that there are a lot of people in our politics and in our media and our entertainment who benefit by increasing and stoking this division. They actually make money from it. They gain power from it by winning elections. And then social media gives people uh, just an environment to spout off and piss each other off, which just creates (laughs) endless cycles of uh, recrimination that never seem to end and always seem to get worse. So I really worry. and, And in a way, this loops back to the points that you and Linda made at the top of this segment about how it's very difficult to adjudicate this question, aside from the context in which we got here. If you abstract from the history of the last 49 years, then yes, you can look at the Roe decision and then the Casey decision uh, 19 years later that reaffirmed Roe on a new basis. And look at those and say, in the abstract, this is not good law, this is not firmly based in the Constitution, therefore it should never have been decided this way. We're going to start over from scratch without it. But the reality is we live in a world where that did happen. And for the last 49 years, women have been living in and been born into and raised in a world where there was an expectation that their reproductive rights were protected by the Constitution of the United States, which the Supreme Court majority has now said actually – Kidding. No, actually, they're not protected by the Constitution. We're going to take away this right that we extended as an institution a half century ago. And for that reason, I think that there is a very strong case for both stare decisis reasons, namely legal precedent, but also what's called reliance interests. That once a court does something and pronounces a right, that each individual changes their calculations of how they're going to live their life on the basis of relying on that being there as a right. Now, the majority dismissed both of those grounds. Uh, I think, you know, they, as you indicated, this is not just a bunch of people kind of saying, we want to overrule abortion and Roe v. Wade and Casey, so humph, here it's done, wave a hand. There's a 200-page document here that I would encourage all Americans to actually read through containing the opinion and then appendices with uh, legal and historical documentation and then a series series of dissents from the liberals, plus these very interesting semi-concurrences with the judgment from both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh. By the way, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh appear to be attempting to create a kind of slightly less extreme conservative block in the middle somewhat here, uh, which is going to be interesting going forward to see where that goes. But only the liberals were willing to give serious credence to star decisis and reliance interests as grounds here my last point no be Roberts simply,
0: was too Roberts was too
4: well okay he was but this goes back to my disagreement with Roberts I really did not like where he came down in this kind of strange middle position I mean I'm all in favor of compromises but he said that he was he believed in upholding star decisis but he got rid of viability as a Standard. And I think Alito really has his number in his response to that and his part of the opinion where he points out look, if you get rid of viability, what we're saying here is that the Mississippi law is fine at 15 weeks, but We're going to have to adjudicate every single law that proposes a different line. So what would you have next? Then you'd have 14 weeks, then 13 weeks, then 12 weeks, all the way down. And what exactly is the ground for the court saying one of them is okay and the other one is not? That would be an example of pure judicial fiat. So I think Roberts is in a trap here. I think he was reared in a culture of the Federalist Society and conservative jurisprudence that dislikes Roe v. Wade intensely, dislikes Casey, wants to get rid of them, and yet he's trying to be prudent here by walking a line between them. But I think he went so far in the direction of what the majority wanted, that he's kind of undercut his own basis here. So if you really want to see, uh, I think, a compelling defense of decisis and reliance interests defending Roe and Casey, you do have to go to the three liberals
0: court watchers will point out though that all of the justices have been hypocrites on the subject of stare decisis at yeah, one stares, time or another. <laughs> stare
4: decisis holds except in the cases where they think it doesn't.
0: Take. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so Pete, you wanted in
2: on this. Yeah, just just briefly. Uh, Damon makes a very strong argument. I would say that as best I can tell, uh, this question of whether stare decisis should hold or not and that the decision in Dobbs is so jolting to the body politic that it shouldn't happen. It really depends on how one views abortion. That is, if if you're relatively untroubled by abortion, you would say, of course, stare decisis should stay in place and Roe shouldn't be overturned for the reasons that have been articulated. If you're uneasy with abortion, then it's a tough call. You think, you know, there's, there, there's harm if Roe and uh, Casey is overturned. But there are some good too. And if you think that abortion is the killing of an innocent human life, then you would say, well, it's not good that this right has existed for 50 years. And I understand that sensibilities have been shaped by it. But something terrible is going on, and we have to absorb that cost for the greater good of protecting innocent life. So I think that prism, that is, the way that a person views abortion, goes very long distance. Toward determining how one feels about Stari Decisis and and overturning Roe and uh, and Casey?
0: There are so many aspects of this issue that we can't even begin to get to. Um, But I, I would just like to note that the world is a very different place in 2022 from what it was in 1973. According to the Guttmacher Institute, 52% of the abortions, I think it was the most recent year was 2018 that they have data for were medication abortions. They were pills. So the world will not look that different actually after Dobbs. That is, I am assuming that a lot more women are going to use pills to have abortions. I'm not sure this will dramatically reduce the number of abortions the other thing is of course that it does have a very disparate impact um and there's just no getting around the fact that the majority of women who have abortions are poor and minority and uh for women who are wealthier this won't make a difference because they will be able to um either get private abortions they will be able to travel they you know whether within this country or outside this country and um and so there is a very strong disparate impact which is Something of concern, I have to say. We didn't even have time to get into the political implications of the Dobbs decision, which are going to be momentous, nor did we get to the Supreme Court's other huge decision that it announced this week curtailing the uh, regulatory authority of the Environmental Protection Agency in a big case, West Virginia v. EPA. But we must move on and discuss the other big news story of this week. It is time to turn to the most extraordinary testimony this week from Cassidy Hutchinson. Much of the attention initially focused on the most lurid and sort of cinematic scenes that she testified to, including President Trump flinging China against the wall when uh, Bill Barr told him that the Justice Department would not say that there was fraud that would have affected the outcome of the election. And she describes herself as grabbing a towel and cleaning ketchup off the Oval Office walls. And of course, the scene in the SUV, which is now being contested. But in any event, arguably, those things are not important. Let's listen to Cassidy Hutchinson describing the thing that I submit was the most important aspect of her testimony. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, "You know, I I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away." The mags being the magnetometers that are always used when uh, there's a presidential event, so that people cannot take weapons in to be near the president and So uh, we have lots of evidence from this very, I think, credible witness who was in a position to see these things, that the president and those around him knew that the crowd was armed. The president was indifferent to this. In fact, he wanted them to be armed. So Ted Johnson, I'm going to start with you. Do you agree with me that that was the most uh, important revelation of her testimony?
3: I do the sort of complete disregard for everyone else's safety, as long as he didn't feel endangered, it is not presidential, it's not principled in any way. And, and to know what happened afterwards inside the Capitol, I can only imagine um, how much more horrible things would have been if he had gotten his way. Can you imagine what would that have
0: looked like
3: I mean so if he's gone exactly exactly if if what he wanted to happen had happened, and not just the guns piece but also like going to the capitol i mean can you imagine Donald Trump followed by a horde of his followers, many of them armed with a r fifteens Entering the Capitol, um, because I can guarantee you that the Capitol Police would not have stopped him. And we saw from January 6th that they probably wouldn't have stopped anyone else behind him. Never mind what the Secret Service might have had to do if the Capitol Police had tried to stop the president from making a movement. And then going to the floor of, I mean, this is, it, it could have been extremely ugly. Um, and the fact that this and man. And of course, it
0: was extremely ugly oh, even yeah, without yeah, this happening. No, well, for sure. Yeah. And, <laughs> right. and you, know,
3: yeah, it, you know, death's probably times 100, what, what um, actually happened given January 6th as it stands now. So the idea that um, he was comfortable with all of that. In order to prove his, show his power, show his the 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 size of his following, and to hold on to power, is just um it's just unbelievable. And I, I think my last point on this is that how much of this I I've, I never want to give Donald Trump credit for being strategic because I think he's just sort of a gut instincts kind of character and, and doesn't give a lot of forethought to things. But the amount of the mens rea of this, the, like the the mental thought that went into ignoring all of the dangers shows that this wasn't just a rally that got out of hand, but that this was sort of a planned or or at least an accepted evolution of bad events that the president himself did not do anything to stop. And it wasn't that he was caught by surprise by it all, but that he knew it was coming and couldn't wait to see it unfold behind his aegis, you know, ostensibly with him leading the charge. That is just an incredible moment in American history.
0: Linda, he planned this, he plotted it. I mean, one of the things that's been so fantastic about the January 6th committee's presentation is that they are building this case brick by brick. You know, that he, first of all, seeded the uh, conspiracy theory that the election was stolen and then attempted to. Strong arm the Justice Department and state legislatures with these fake electors and on and on and on. Like every step of the way, he was attempting a coup. And that includes the planning for January 6th.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, there's so much focus on the day, January 6th, with most of us uh, thought was one of the worst days in American history, certainly in our lifetimes. But the fact is, this was simply the culmination of a coup plot, of a conspiracy by people in and out of government to try to prevent the duly elected President of the United States, Joe Biden, from taking office on January 20th. And what the committee has done over a course of six hearings is build that case and show it. And of course, we talked about this partially before, but the earlier hearing, the fifth hearing in which we had Justice Department uh, officials laying out what happened in the days immediately preceding January 6th. Some of what took place took place in late December, others in January. And what Trump was trying to do was overturn the election, and he was being aided by, as I say, officials in and out of government. John Eastman, of course, came up with this cockamamie theory that it was uh, Mike Pence's right to simply not count the votes and to throw uh, the election essentially back to state legislatures. Uh, There was a, a concerted effort to create false electors in states who at least one U.S. senator tried to hand the votes of those electors, uh, that would be Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, to Mike Pence so that he could count those electors instead of those that had been certified in, and passed over from the National Archives. We have the scene of the Justice Department officials, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, and uh, Mr. Donahue, and um, former Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel Stephen Engel, who talked about a meeting in the Oval Office in which the president, who had already apparently decided to replace Rosen as acting Attorney General of the United States with a man named Jeffrey Clark, and it was only when Trump was informed that virtually every single political appointee in the Department of Justice would resign if he did so, that that was stopped. But he wanted that to happen so that you could have someone in the acting attorney general uh, spot who would be telling states that the election was a fraud and that they could not count on those electors. So this was a really detailed conspiracy. It was not something that happened in the spur of the moment. And as terrible as those pictures were on January 6th of the people destroying property, beating up police, injuring police, uh, as horrible as you know, the deaths that occurred as a result of that fraction were, the fact was that was simply the culmination of an extensive plot. And I personally believe that unless there are indictments up to and including Donald J. Trump that this is a real danger. It's a constitutional danger to us going forward.
0: Damon, I know you've been anti-indictment, and uh, I have to confess that I have been on the fence about this myself. Not sure whether it would be the right or wrong thing to do, but I'm really feeling now that the indictment is the way to go, because the thought that you could have immunity and that the president can act with impunity when he is a sociopath and a criminal is such an affront to our concept of ordered liberty and the rule of law. Do you disagree?
4: I guess I do. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I thought so. It's so frustrating because, you know... First of all, I'm not a lawyer, and and this is an area of law that is – there's not a lot of law to look for because, you know, we don't usually indict former presidents. You know, this is this is sort of all new territory, so I don't really envy Merrick Garland in trying to figure this out. But I will simply reiterate what I've said before. I think our, our colleague Bill Galston has made versions of this point uh, on the podcast at several points as well. I will defer to the Attorney General if he does think that he can find a law that he believes Donald Trump broke and that he has a serious chance of getting him indicted by a grand jury and convicted by a trial. He should go ahead and do it, and I will support it. I won't like come out and say this is a terrible error, but I sort of hope it doesn't happen, and that is because Donald Trump is a political problem. He is a manifestation of a much bigger issue in this country. And that issue is that roughly half the country likes him and what he does. And I really do sort of dread the prospect of him being put on trial and then not just him, but our entire legal system being sucked into a kind of politicized circus. Now that doesn't speak to like whether he still should be put on trial and possibly convicted and possibly sent to jail. You know, maybe that's all for the best. I do think, though, given that this is primarily a political problem, it would be much better for the country for instead him to get through the January 6th hearings and convince enough of his followers, not all of them by any means, not even most of them, but enough that he decisively loses if he tries to run for president again. That would be far more effective and far better for the country. He needs to be a loser, (laughs) which is what this whole thing is about, right? The entire thing is about his unwillingness to accept that he lost the last election because he cannot process the possibility of being a loser. He and his followers need to absorb the fact that he is, in fact, a loser. And so that is what we need most of all. And that is what would be best for the country. Is there anything that would keep him from running for president while under indictment and under in, in a trial? I, I don't think there is. I mean, do we want to live through him in the Republican primary in 2024 while under federal indictment for trying to overthrow the government? Um <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't relish well, that at all.
0: Okay, so as the lone lawyer here, I think I, I will just chime in and say that actually, in American history, we have not only had felons run, we have had people elected from prison, Michael Curley in Boston. So that can happen.
4: Yeah. So I mean, and what would that do to the rule of law in America? Uh, So for all these reasons, I hope it's clear to listeners and to all the panelists here that I'm making this argument purely on the basis of a kind of prudential judgment. This is not a moral statement. I mean, in moral terms, I would love to see him spend every single last Breath and day of his life in prison, and he's earned it. But uh, getting there is a complicated business. Okay, yeah,
0: no, we we know that, Damon. <laughs> I mean, rest assured. What a rest relief. assured. Yeah. What a yeah. Okay, so Pete Damon raises the whole question of: Is Trump a cause or a symptom? And, you know, I I think all of us on this panel would agree that it's a little bit of both. But let me make the case for being a cause. You look at the behavior of Mark Meadows, described by Cassidy Hutchinson, and you look at Cassidy Hutchinson herself. Here she is, this, at the time, 24 or 23-year-old, whatever she was. So she doesn't know how the world works yet, you know, and she is being exposed to this kind of just unbelievably intense corruption and it takes her a while to process that that isn't right you know and and it takes a lot for her to realize but mark meadows is so corrupted by being in the trump orbit and by his loyalty to trump that he buries himself in his phone when he's being told that people are going to die and that he is going to have blood on his hands and he refuses to look up and he keeps scrolling on his telephone rather than confront uh, the reality of what he is a part of. And um, that is the work of a sociopath named Donald J. Trump.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I think the rise of Donald Trump, in a sense, he was a manifestation, but he's a seditious madman. And when you have a seditious madman who's the head of your party and then the president of the United States, bad things happen, awful things happen, and far more awful things could have happened, as we're finding out, than, uh, than actually did. And this underscores what I think is a sort of deeply conservative view and reaction, which is how important civic and political culture is in determining how people act. Because a lot of these people who were in Trump's orbit, if they had been in another environment with different incentive systems and a different leader, would have acted like completely normal Republicans. But because of Donald Trump and the power that he held and the power that they wanted and their own cowardice and their own lack of convictions, their own unwillingness to stand for truth and in an avalanche of lies, they did things that in any other situation, circumstance, context that they wouldn't have done. So that's really important. And I I want to say, because I I agree with so much of what's been said, other than Damon's robust defense of Donald Trump, no (laughs) That Cassidy uh, Hutchison's testimony was a withering indictment of Donald Trump, but it was a withering indictment of his party. I mean, I don't want to overlook that. Donald Trump is a sociopath. That should have been obvious to people a long time ago. It's now, I think, beyond dispute. But he couldn't have done what he did without having virtually the entire infrastructure of one of the two major political parties in this country behind him. And there were people who went silent in the face of his lawlessness and his malignant and malicious acts. And there were people who championed him. And uh, there were people who went after his critics. But the whole picture taken together is a political party that almost to a person with a few honorable exceptions got behind him and defended him. And that is an indelible stain on that party and those people. And They're now in a position, because of the work of the January 6th committee, that this is no longer speculative. This is absolutely obvious. There's no denying the picture that's been painted, the evidence that's been amassed, not just because of the Hutchinson testimony, but because of everything that's come before and the things that will come after. And so they're stuck with him and they're stuck with their words and their misdeeds and their cowardice. And this is going to stay with them for a long time, and it should.
0: Linda, I just want to come back to you. I see you have your hand up, but I also want to ask you, um, I have this, I can't base this on very much, but I do have this sort of intuition that the committee actually is being successful at preventing another Donald Trump term, that the idea of him being the nominee now does seem far more remote than it did before these hearings. What's your sense of that?
1: Uh, I agree, and by the way, I had my hand up because I think we haven't mentioned that the uh, committee has now issued a subpoena to Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel, and it looks to me, from you know just reading the tea leaves, that he probably will testify, perhaps. In written form, perhaps in a narrow area so that he doesn't get into issues that he considers uh, privileged uh, to his position and representing the office of the presidency. But if and when that happens, I think that will be the end for Donald Trump.
0: And by the way, this is going to, this, we should get a lawyer on to discuss this actually, because um, the White House counsel, as you say, Linda, does represent the office of the presidency, and he is not the president's personal lawyer and certainly not the president's criminal defense attorney. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: But even before that happens, it is very clear that there are a large number of people within the Republican Party who, even those who are Trumpists in terms of supporting, every one of Trump's policies who want to see him go away i think they fear that he is the one candidate if nominated who cannot win in 2024 and my fear is that he might win but i think you know other people believe that he's the one person that cannot win and that this is looking like a pretty good year for Republicans in 2024 who knows whether that will be true two years hence but you know as of now mm-hmm. and you do have a whole lot of people out there now talking more about Ron DeSantis who you know see him as representing trumpism without uh, trump You know, he's a Yale and Harvard educated uh, official. He's done a lot of things that conservatives approve of in the state of Florida. I think he's not a very appealing person, um, but, you know, that's just me. Do I support some of the policies, though, that he's put in place? Uh, Probably, because I remain a conservative. So I think that I've always said, that at some point there would be a critical mass to turn against Donald Trump. And I think we may have reached that point or may be very close to reaching it.
0: So I'll agree with you on that last piece, but you and I can argue on some other occasion as to whether Ron DeSantis is really conservative. I don't think he is. So (laughs) we can argue about that later. But now we will turn to our final segment, the highlight or lowlight of the week. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Pete Wayner.
2: Yeah, it's it's a highlight, and it's a highlight of the intrepid Liz Cheney, but not uh, her appearance uh, on the January 6th commission, but it was actually a speech that she gave the other day at the Reagan Library. And um, Liz Cheney being Liz Cheney, she didn't pull any punches, and she had a line that I think is worth noting here, and she said, the reality that we face today as Republicans as we think about the choice in front of us we have to choose because Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. This is a, a wonderful formulation and uh, really builds on what she's been saying for a long time now. What was interesting to me is that she she made that speech at the Reagan Library, so I'm glad for that. And it was also that um, that elicited applause, even some standing ovation within, yeah. within the audience. And I think that goes to the point that you and, and Linda were making, which is something has changed because of these committee hearings uh, in terms of how the Republican Party is is viewing uh, Donald Trump. But most of all, it's a tribute to Liz Cheney, who has been a kind of Margaret Thatcher of our country. And I'm glad she's done what she's done and said what she says and that she continues to do so. I think in the end, in Cheney versus Trump, Cheney may come out in the most important ways on top.
0: God bless her. She really has met the moment and just been sterling throughout all of this.
1: Uh, Linda. Well, I'm going to point to another Supreme Court decision that was handed down this week, and that was a decision that said yes, the president of the United States, one Joe Biden, does have the right to change the policy uh, that I think has been quite humane, which is that those seeking asylum in the United States, if they are apprehended uh, or turn themselves in at the border. If they are not from Mexico, nonetheless must be returned to Mexico, uh, where they will await adjudication of their claims. Now, you know, I think that our asylum laws are a mess. They need absolutely to be rewritten. And the reason the the court came down on this side with, by the way, uh, not only Chief Justice uh, Roberts uh, weighing in, but also Brett Kavanaugh on the winning uh, side or on the uh, determining side, was because there were conflicting parts of our asylum laws that were, frankly, unenforceable. I mean, there is a provision that says that uh, people must be returned to their state of origin, uh, the country of origin. That is very difficult, almost impossible to do. And so uh, there's another provision that says they should be detained in the United States and detained meaning locked up but uh, there were over 600,000 people last year who tried to claim asylum in the United States, and there are about 34,000 places in detention, so that was impossible. So I think this at least gives an opportunity for the administration. They're going to have to go back to the lower court. They're going to have to try to figure this out, but I think it was a decision that means that there will not be as many people Intense on the other side of the border this summer, as many people dying because of the conditions there or getting very, very sick, uh, women being raped, others being kidnapped. Uh, so I think it was a good decision. That was one of my highlights. Thank you.
0: Damon Linker.
1: Well, um, I will once again uh,
4: make reference to our uh, absent colleague, uh, Bill Galston, who uh, on a Recent episode, probably about a month ago, uh, made a point of saying that, uh, yes, Joe Biden has had a a kind of Uh, turbulent presidency, but his finest hour uh, by far has been his handling of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that, I think, continued this week, where due to lots of back-channel negotiations, it is now, sounds like it is official that we will have ascension to NATO by Finland and Sweden. This is a really big deal. Uh, yeah, the idea. I mean, this is these. This is not a, a small Baltic or Balkans state uh, that is sort of peripheral to the geopolitical scene. These are major European countries that have deliberately staked out neutrality for decades, and in Finland's case, played a very significant part. The neutrality of Finland played a very significant part in the Cold War. And so the idea that Putin supposedly initiated this uh, bloodthirsty war on Ukraine as a kind of uh, act to forestall Ukraine joining NATO, because this was so unconscionable, that now he's going to end up with Finland with a something like 800-mile border on Russia, right on Russia's border, plus Sweden thrown into the mix uh, is a real uh, blow to him and uh, a very good move. But uh, let let me add to, to this, uh, as further applause for Biden, more of a highlight, uh, some of the following announcements that were made uh, just recently. Uh, The president has also announced U.S. military deployments to Europe. We're creating a permanent headquarters for the U.S. 5th Army Corps in Poland, deploying additional rotational brigade to Romania, deploying two additional F-35 squadrons to the U.K., enhancing rotational deployments to the Baltics, and uh, some other things too, additional Navy destroyers to Spain, and on and on, all of which goes to say, not that, oh boy, we're going to be at war with Russia in a week. No, this is a perfect example of peace through strength. Russia made a tremendous gamble here, and it is very, very important that Putin understands that this is blowing up in his face. And however the ugly Ukraine war gets resolved, he needs to understand that it isn't going one inch further than this mess.
0: Well said. Ted Johnson.
3: Yeah. So um, my highlight actually happened when Ketanji Brown Jackson was sworn in to the Supreme Court upon Justice Breyer's retirement following the last decision of this uh, court's term. And it's a highlight for me for a couple of reasons. The first one is because this is a reply to those who say that America is like this racist country that's irredeemably so and that the whole game is rigged and no matter what a person does, you just can't get ahead without massive restructuring. Um, Yes, the country has some issues. Yes, inequality is one of them across a number of factors. But Ketanji Brown Jackson is a justice on the Supreme Court and that is a story of progress in America, one that I think we should be extremely proud of, even in moments of chaos and in moments of tension, we should take a step back, take a breath and recognize that the promise Is alive, And if it's not well, it's at least doggedly clinging to its vitality to suggest uh, that hopefully to inspire us to recognize that there's more to fight for for this country and that um, we are not as sick as some would have us believe. The other part of this is she did something that's really rare on the left these days, which is to declare her patriotism and love of country up front. When she spoke at the White House during the announcement of her nomination, and when she spoke at the beginning of her hearings, she said explicitly, the United States of America is the greatest beacon of hope and democracy the world has ever known. The first of my many blessings is the fact that I was born in this great nation. And she also says, I am so proud of the fact that my parents gave me an African name because it also speaks to my heritage and, and sort of the history of my people. And showed that there's no tension between these two things, that the American promise is consonant with our different identities, our different paths, our different histories, and that is the thing that makes this country beautiful. So, you know, even as the court has sort of thrown a stick of dynamite into the, <laughs> into the country for us to, to sort of pick up the pieces and see where we go from here, it is also the location of a slight glimmer of the promise still being alive that I think we should um, pay a little bit more attention to on a day like today. Amen. I would like to highlight a small story from the
0: Metro section of the Washington Post this week that talked about the city of Baltimore. If anybody listening has ever watched The Wire or We Own This City, I think is the new series, uh, they know that Baltimore has had a lot of problems <laughs> and uh, it's a very, very troubled city and it's currently under a consent decree with the Justice Department because of the death of Freddie Gray in police custody and it's got a lot of problems. But the highlight is that the Baltimore police have announced a new program, which um, is for internships. And the Baltimore police department is going to partner with two historically black colleges in the Baltimore area and bring in interns who will learn all about policing from the basics of walking a beat all the way to, you know, data analysis and all kinds of other things. And uh, they're hoping that they may be able to boost recruitment among African-American college graduates. And so it just seems to be, oh, and it's the model that they're hoping to see uh, if it works uh, expanded around the country. So that struck me as a step forward and in a city that really needs it. So fingers crossed that that is a success. And so I would like to thank uh, Ted Johnson for filling in for Bill Galston today. And I would like to thank Peter Wehner for joining us. Always a pleasure. Our production is uh, overseen by Katie Cooper. And our sound engineer today is Joe Armstrong. We also appreciate our listeners and especially those who comment and uh, rate and review us. We will return next week as every week.